how much culture really plays a part in the way that we think, view the world, the way that we see ourselves, the way we see our own opportunities, our education, all of those things all come through the lens of culture. And so that really was the beginning of my obsession with culture. And every time I encounter a new culture, I learn something new. I often feel like I take more away than what I give. So that's what I'm now trying to impart with people that I encounter as I'm talking about a culture of courage. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. I am so excited to bring you the next episode of the Raise 1000 Voices podcast with the gorgeous Sarah Moore. Sarah, how are you? Hi, fantastic. How are you? I'm really, really well, thank you. Now, for everybody listening along at home and both here in Australia and overseas, we've got a growing audience in the US, where in the world are you right now? I'm in Sydney, Australia in my home office. Amazing. So I'm lucky to live about 10 minutes from the beach. Oh, fantastic. And are they those beautiful northern beaches of Sydney that everyone talks about? They are. It's a little bit hard not to be a beach snob when you come from the northern beaches. But uh, (laughs) yes, they are very, very beautiful. Not only are you Australian, you live near one of the best beach stretches in the world. So (laughs) amazing. So Sarah, in my world and in the world where we all know and love Sarah Moores, you're known as somebody who really speaks out into creating cultures of courage. So that's quite a bold statement. I'd love to start with in this conversation, if you could take us through who Sarah Morse is and her evolution that brought her to this point where she really is speaking to with strength, power and grace into creating cultures of courage. Are you able to walk us through that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess my fascination with culture started as a 16-year-old when I got on the plane by myself, my first time on a plane. And I went to East Germany. Wow. And I'm not really sure what my parents were thinking. (laughs) They thought it was a good idea at the time. But I look at my 16-year-old nieces now and I just think, wow, that was a pretty big call. Yeah. So, yeah, so I went to East Germany and it was like five years after the Berlin Wall came down. Oh, so that was all fairly current and recent. It was very recent. And I was a naive girl from the, you know, northern suburbs of Sydney and I literally had no idea really what even happened, why even, you know, East Germany had been a separate country and now it wasn't. And so the family that I stayed with, I mean, they had been living in East Germany for their entire lives. So, but I'd actually gotten to know their daughter had come out to Australia on exchange. Okay. So then I went back and stayed with her family. But That was my first experience of really severe culture shock, of just thinking, what is going on here? So can you explain that to me, like culture shock as a 16-year-old landing in East Germany? Can you take us into what that felt like and what you observed? Yeah, sure. So, well, firstly, I flew into West Germany, actually. So in the lead up to Christmas, I did some beautiful things, went to the Christmas market, stayed with some other relatives. So it was actually my English teacher was actually German and she loved me and she decided to send me off to stay with all her family members. 
So it wasn't even a proper exchange program. So I, I actually landed in West Germany and that was beautiful. And it was like snow-covered mountains and, you know, pictures from fairy tales. And I thought, wow, yeah. this is amazing. And then they drove me to stay with this friend that I'd made in, in East Germany and her family. And the contrast then between West Germany and East Germany, that was what I didn't understand. And at that point, you could stand at the place where the Berlin Wall had been and you could look up the hill and on one side was brightly coloured houses and on the other side was grey, decrepit communist blocks. Where you could see the line. Wow. And so that was where that she had spent her whole life. So what I didn't understand until I got there was how much communism actually changes the way that people think. So when people can't think for themselves, they can't make choices for themselves, they don't. Yeah. And so everybody starts to think the same. They listen to the same music. But, you know, there's one brand of jeans that they're allowed to buy. They're, you know, they're conditioned on every single part of their lives. And so for me, coming from, you know, a very loving family, just, you know, being free to be myself, to think, say, do whatever I liked, you know, to come into this place where, you know, Jenny, who was the exact same age as me, but her upbringing and her experiences had been so vastly different from mine, really was an eye-opener on, uh, first of all, how lucky I was. Yeah. And secondly, how much culture really plays a part in the way that we think, view the world, the way that we see ourselves, the way we see our own opportunities, our education, all of those things all come through the lens of culture. And so that really was the beginning of my obsession with culture. Yeah. And that's gone all the way through. So for the past 20 years, I have been a humanitarian and traveled all around the world working in humanitarian contexts. And every time I encounter a new culture, I learn something new. You know, I often feel like I take more away than what I give. So yeah, that's what I'm now trying to impart with people that I encounter as I'm talking about a culture of courage. Yeah, and actually when you think about if I if we even just stay with the East German example at the moment, even for them to start to embrace a more freer way of life is an extreme act of courage, isn't it? When you've spent your whole life being conditioned and then you suddenly have opportunity and the ability to step in it is actually one of the most courageous steps they can take as their first steps, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and Jenny herself, she was probably more courageous than me. She got on a plane by herself and came out yeah. to Australia, first of all. And I didn't understand, you know, I took her around Sydney and, you know, we stopped off at a food court to, you know, just in my head, grab something quickly to eat and move on. And she was just absolutely gobsmacked. She had never been in a food court before. Yeah. She couldn't understand, like, what do you mean there's food from every country in the world here? There's Lebanese, there's Chinese, there's Thai, there's Japanese. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, and she just, we spent hours in this food court and she was just wandering yeah. around, like actually incapable of making a choice. Yeah. And I was getting quite impatient. Like, oh, come on, we've just like got to get to whatever museum we're going to, whatever. But for her, it was just, you know, mind blowing that yeah. somebody could have that much choice. Yeah. You know, so, you know, thinking about her and how much that expanded her mind. And I didn't really understand that until then I went to East Germany. Yeah went to school with her you know it was winter it was dark we were walking to yeah. school with the stars still out you know watching the sunrise from wow. the classroom you know like it was it was intense but sort of seeing yeah I mean they were poor as well you know they lived yeah. their family four lived in a two-bedroom apartment you know they had to like recycle water that we all sort of had baths out of the same water they let me go first which was nice yeah. <laughs> you know but they, they really didn't have a whole lot of money and so yeah understanding really what that lack of choice and 
the you know, the implications of growing up in a communist country, what that actually means. Yeah. And she would have been separated from her family that I'd met in the West as well. Yeah. You know, so yeah, the implications of that were quite quite extreme. Yeah. So you mentioned that you spent that that put you on a pathway of the next 20 years or the last 20 years being working as a humanitarian and going into arenas around the world. Tell us about some of those and and the ones that really stand out and the stories that come with those and what you took away from them. So what's kind of, yeah, take us through. (laughs) Yeah, so after East Germany, then my next stop was on a World Vision study tour when I was 17. So I guess when I was 16, that was sort of my first bite of different cultures of different world. I got bitten by the travel bug pretty bad. (laughs) As we all do. (laughs) Also just fell in love with the world, fell in love with different cultures and wanting to explore, you know, as much of the world as I could. And then as a year 12 student, I remember it was on my birthday and I just was really in this place of saying, what am I going to do with my life? Where am I going? You know? Yeah. And I remember just kneeling down beside my bed and just praying and saying, God, if you want to do something with my life, then take me, I'm yours. Show me what you want me to do. And it became clear during that time that I should apply for this World Vision Study Tour. And so I did. I applied for World Vision Study Tour. I won with another three girls of my same age. And uh, for two weeks, we went to Zimbabwe and Zambia. Wow. And travelled around looking at World Vision projects. And yeah, while the East German experience was my first encounter cross-culturally, that experience in Africa really was my first encounter with true poverty and seeing people living literally with nothing. I remember a little boy that has stuck with me even until now. His name was Fanuel and they were part of a World Vision program. They were trying to reach out with food supplies and give them food security but they're in the middle of a drought and he just lived in this little mud hut with his elderly grandfather and his parents had already passed away and he had a little toddler brother as well he was about eight or nine and but he had this lame leg and for years and years and years he used to just sit around in the dirt and couldn't move and then somebody at World Vision gave him this pair of crutches and so he was so excited to be able to show us how he could use his crutches. And so there's this little wow. boy in the middle of this dirt, you know, in this tiny little mud hut. And But there he is, like, whooping with joy, you know, this huge big smile on his face that now he can get around and he can go to school and, you know, so excited to show us his new crutches. And I still have got these photos of Fanuel, this giant big smile on his face. Uh, But his grandfather told us that, you know, they had no food and if it wasn't for World Vision that they would be starving, Yeah, you know. And so, you know, the contrast of his joy and his excitement over something that we would take for granted, you know, a pair of crutches that were life-changing for him, but also, you know, seeing people who literally had nothing, that really just drastically changed my life. And I came to a junction point in my life then. I had already enrolled in nursing, but I thought to myself, I could just go back to my, you know, ordinary life and do ordinary things or I can make a choice to serve the poor and try and make my life mean something. And so that's what I did at the age of 17, came back into nursing and experienced quite severe reverse culture shock coming back to Australia, really, really struggling with my own wealth, my own choices, the things that I had always taken for granted, you know, that I always just thought we came from an ordinary family. You know, we used to drive around in this balmy yellow Commodore, you know, and I thought <laughs> it just, you know, my friends who had posher cars, whatever, and I thought, oh, like, we're not rich. We, you know, yeah. we've got this rubbish car. But 
no seeing people with literally nothing and realize how much I had it sent me into a really massive reverse culture shock so reverse culture shock is returning to what is normal yeah when you have changed okay and so although it was only a two-week trip and I came back and, you know, everything was exactly the same as I'd left it. And, you know, the Vegemite was still in the same spot in the cupboard and the wheat bix was in the same place that it had always been. And, you know, my parents were doing the same things that they always did, but I had changed drastically. Yeah. And so that impact of coming back into my home culture and experience reverse culture shock for the first time, that was quite extraordinary as well. What did you do? How did you move yourself through that reverse culture shock? Or did you just go again? (laughs) Well, now I know, and I have been a trainer in both culture shock and reverse culture shock. So now I know the steps and the process needed to go through in order to combat that. So yeah, but as a 17 year old, what did you do? At the time, I just did what I knew the next thing to do, which was to start uni. And that was what I had, you know, I came back from Africa, I think I had maybe a week and then was starting uni again. So I had to get ready, you know, get all my nursing supplies and everything together. But on the very first day of uni, I met my best friend, Libby, and she's still my best friend today. And she had just been to Africa as well on a similar trip. And it turns out that we'd been to all similar places along the way. Yeah. She went with a different organisation, not Well Vision, but we'd been, we'd eaten at the same restaurants, like we'd been at the same hotels, like not that far apart, you know. It was like, oh, my gosh, me too. Oh, my gosh, me too. And so I really feel like Libby was a gift to me. Yeah. And probably I to her as well as we navigated that together. And so probably the main healing thing came from, you know, just sitting around, you know, being good uni students, just, you know, sitting around talking, you know. Yeah, working your (laughs) Um, way through it. Yeah, uni's different these days. But back then you you might have had one lecture in the morning and had like three hours to kill and then, you know, another lecture in the afternoon. And so we used to just sit out in the sun at uni and just talk and talk and talk. Yeah. And both of us in that same place of like, what are we going to do with our lives? I really want to make an impact you know, what, how are you coping with the things that we've just seen and the poverty and all that kind of thing. So that was probably really the main thing was that we just talked yeah. and shared our hearts. And- that connection between two people who had the similar experience, shared experiences. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. And so what's the next step on the humanitarian pathway for Sarah? Where did you end up next? <laughs> Well, I wasn't a very good uni student. I didn't spend a whole lot of time at uni. (laughs) I think most of our listening audience can attest to the same. It's quite okay. (laughs) I feel sorry for uni students now and with a lot of online learning and things like that. I just, I feel like you miss out on that, the growth that comes just through doing life with being a uni student. Yeah. Solving the world's problem. We're sitting, I mean, the only thing that we could buy at our cafeteria at that time was like, you know, wedges and sour cream and sweet chili sauce. That was all the only thing, basically. <laughs> like now there's like these massive food courts and things. And so, you know, we'd solve all the world problems over wedges and sweet chili sauce. But, yeah, so so I was very fortunate that the next thing that I did, was it the next? Yes, it was the next thing. So I got chosen to be the World Vision Youth Ambassador for Australia the following year. So what does that mean? So what that meant was a really extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. So there was 50 young people from 50 different countries chosen to be part of this World Vision Choir. And so we met, first of all, in Los Angeles and we trained there as a choir. So we'd never met. We had our first performance the first week that we arrived. 
which was at the Crystal Cathedral. It's not there anymore. Wow, that's extraordinary. But, yeah, it had a global audience of, you know, millions of people. We'd literally just met and we had to get to performance level within the next week for that first performance. And so that was, again, another life-altering experience. So talk about, you know, cultures. There were 50 different cultures in that place. Yeah. And uh, so the way that we were sort of structured was that we had three hours of education and three hours of choir rehearsal every day. And our educator was this wonderful, wonderful man called Don. And uh, he was an old, you know, retired psychologist And he really forced us early on. He forced us into conflict, actually. He purposely did things that made us angry. You know, so there was people from, you know, all apart from cultures, there was like rich people, poor people. There were, there was World Vision program. So there were sponsor kids there, people who were sponsored children through World Vision that had been selected to come. There was a girl who grew up on a rubbish dump. There was another guy from Uganda that grew up with no food. His friends used to call him banana because that's all the things that they had to eat. Yeah. You know, and but there we all were, sort of 18, 19 year olds together in this same place. So, what Don did, he actually forced us into conflict early because he knew that there was all these issues bubbling up under the surface. So, it'd be like, you know, okay, break up into pairs and go and find something that's different about, you know, we're all trying to find our common ground, our common thing. You know, Don would be like, okay, go find something that's different about the person that you're talking to, or, you know, find somebody who has a different faith background to you. Go and talk to them about their faith. Find out what their faith means to them. Or, you know, oh, so many different things. And he would on purpose do things that would cause conflict. Wow. And then teach us, okay, you guys still love each other, right? We're in this. How are we going to get through this? Yeah. And so then, then he would show us, you know, the whole thing was about justice and reconciliation. So he would show us by doing what reconciliation looks like. What does it mean to find peace here? Does it mean that you have to think the same? No. Okay, so where do we find the common ground then? He was a very extraordinary man. But that experience meant that we went deep really quickly. Yeah. And we're still connected even now. So we're connected with, so it went for five years, that program. So there's 250 youth ambassadors around the world. So the 250 of us are connected in a global community and still now very, very close. And that was quite an extraordinary turning point in my life. I shared a, not a, a dormitory, I shared a dormitory with a girl from Bosnia. So this was 1997. It was just a year after the war had ended in Bosnia. And so sat with her night after night as she just told me her stories of living in the basement, of hearing, you know, the war going on around her. And, you know, just hearing her stories and hearing what that was like, you know, this girl who, you know, loved the same music as me. She loved, you know, we had the same sort of pop idols and things like that. And yet our lives were just so vastly different. And uh, she actually had this song, this dance that she performed that she made up when she was in the basement with her girlfriends. It's like, you know, it's raining men and they choreographed this dance together and they put on like a performance for their families in the basement of their apartment block. So she performed that for the, with the youth ambassadors as we traveled around. And another significant person, I fell in love for the first time there yeah. with a boy called Ichab from Palestine. He was born in Bethlehem. And, you know, again, very naive, didn't really know the difference between Palestine and Israel. I'm like, so what's the big deal about Jerusalem? Like, can't you guys just share it? Like, what's the problem, you know? (laughs) Very naive. But how did he respond to that? He was like, I can't believe you don't know nothing about my country. I will teach you. (laughs) And so every night, every night, we're a little bit naughty. 
who snuck out a few times, but <laughs> he mainly would like sit with me and like, okay, what do the colors of the flag mean? Like, you know, it, telling me about, and also about being a Christian in Palestine. So being a minority Christian growing up in Palestine, you know, in Bethlehem, in the place where Jesus was born. I mean, it just was a, a radical shift in my worldview. Yeah. And what other experiences in that humanitarian journey of yours really stand out? That you really learn something new. I mean, as I said in the beginning, I learned something new every time. Yeah. Every time. So over the next several years, I went on lots and lots of different trips. So Libby and I went to Africa and we went and worked in a primary healthcare clinic in Africa. The, the next year, I got invited back as a leader on the World Vision Youth Ambassador Program. So I got to go twice. Wow. And, you know, an extraordinary journey in that. And then started my nursing, you know, started working as a nurse and had about a couple of years experience. And then I went to live in Romania. Yeah. And probably, I mean, I stayed there for two years. So probably, you know, my experience in Romania was very impactful because I was there for such a long period of time. But yeah, working with children in an orphanage that had never been touched, that had never been picked up or held or even been outside. So some of the children were sort of 10, 11 years old and had never been outside before. And the conditions that we found them in was horrifying, absolutely heartbreaking and horrifying. I mean, nothing, there's absolutely nothing that could prepare you for that first day at the orphanage. And I mean, I'd been around by then, you know, and my team leader was saying, oh, you know, you've got to prepare yourself. And I'm like, oh, I've been to Africa. I've seen poverty. I, you know, but it was nothing like I'd ever experienced before finding those children who had basically been abandoned in orphanages. So we were, my team leader, her name was Ruth, again, another amazing woman. She went to the orphanage director and said, take us to the worst children that you have. And he said, if I take you to them, you'll just be like all the other volunteers and you'll never come back. And she said, no, we want to go to the worst children. Mm -hmm. And so he took us to this place. They'd already been in there for a couple of months when I arrived where the children really were in such a terrible state. But he was a kind and good director, which was very unusual at that time. Most of the directors were very corrupt and, you know, stealing resources and stuff. He was really there to try and help the children. And so he gave us a room. Ruth asked for, you know, could he give us a a room that we could do therapy in? And he gave us his old storeroom and uh, Ruth had a whole team of Americans come out and they painted the room and made it into this amazing, beautiful, vibrant space that we could take the children. And so we saw the children, we brought out a physiotherapist who taught us like basic skills on how to get them moving and get, get them walking, crawling, feeding themselves, things like that. And we saw in those two years, we saw the progression of those children absolutely drastically change. Yeah. And we took them outside for the first time. You know, they were scared when they first went out and we kept on just taking them outside and then, you know, they grew to love it. And, yeah, children that had been so withdrawn and terrified of even being touched, you know, would run to us, you know, wanting to be the first ones to be held and cuddled and things like that. So, yeah, those children will always stay with me, I think. I think also too, we, I mean, I alluded to the fact that I've known you for a while as we opened the podcast. I do know you, I do know the work that you do. I think one of the stories, if it's okay, if I ask you to share something, one of the ones that's really stuck with me in our conversations was in that orphanage and the Christmas where you actually allowed the women who worked in the orphanage to be seen and loved for a moment. Mm. Would you mind going there for us? Because I think that has such a powerful message for all of us. 
in a place where the children were being held and you your focus was the children, what Ruth, I think, always realized with these women and what you did that Christmas day that just really changed how they showed up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. That is a powerful story. So right from the beginning, Ruth really had the wisdom. She was only a couple of years older than me, but she was a really beautiful leader and she had the wisdom to say, we're here to serve, we're not here to overrule. And, I mean, that's 101 on any kind of a development project or any kind of leadership really yeah is to listen to the people not to come in and say we have all the answers we're going to change everything blah 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 and so very early on Ruth said we're here to serve we're here to love we're not here to judge you know it wasn't those workers who worked there it wasn't their fault that the children were like that they didn't have any resources you know we'd ask them could they change a nappy they said with what we only have one nappy per day how do you expect us to change so we started bringing in our own nappies to change the children, you know, but they were very institutionalized. I think those early days in East Germany actually helped me to understand more about, you know, how their mindset was, how they were thinking, because they were just as institutionalized as the children. Yeah. And so, but that meant that we had to sit with awful things happening. So we would see the workers hitting the children or tying them to chairs or things like that. And, but Ruth was like, no, we don't judge. We're not here to overrule we're here to love and to serve and so we would go gently and and show them a different way of doing it with the child but never directing any kind of anger or anything towards the worker but they were very hostile towards us they thought we were there to take their jobs they thought you know they thought they would get into trouble like they said if the children get sick when you take them outside it's going to be our fault like you know and so they were very very hostile towards us very cautious not interested at all in learning any knowledge that we had they were like oh those stupid volunteers coming again like and so then this and we had a problem with we used to get a lot of donations coming in from overseas and we had a big problem with the workers taking the donations yeah so we'd get a whole box of toys for the children or a whole box of clothes for the children we'd go back the next day and it was gone yeah the workers would take they were poor themselves they were you know, so they'd see toys that their own children at home didn't have. And they think, well, why does this, you know, abandoned child get that toy? I want to take that for my children. But again, understanding like it's, it was kind of stealing, but not really because they didn't have the things either themselves. Right. Mm. So Ruth came up with this great idea. First of all, any clothes that we got, we used to write like property of the orphanage, like all over it, you text us so that the workers wouldn't take it home to their own children. But then we we got this big delivery of toys and Ruth said, you know what, like our kids, they're really not at the point of playing with these trucks and dolls and things that we had. So we kept the very nicest, best toys and we put them aside for the workers. And then on Christmas Day, and it was really cold, it was like minus 20 degrees or something like that. <laughs> we drove through the snow and the ice. We actually had a car accident on the way there. We slid on some black ice and ran into a semi-trailer and Anyway, we made it there and we arrived with these boxes of toys and, and gifts for the workers. And the, the orphanage was made up of these little sort of houses where all the children were. So we went around to each, each house. In Romania, they have this tradition called caroling and they go around, you know, outside caroling. So we just went around to all the different houses in the orphanage and caroling and saying to the workers, you know, we're having a Christmas party. And they're like, oh, I bet you want us to bring the children. And we're like, no, 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 this one's for you. This is especially for you. And so they were like quite confused. And so they came over into this one building and we'd set up, you know, a beautiful Christmas lunch for them. And we did some more caroling and, uh, and we said, and, and now we've got some presents for you and we've got one each for each of you. And we've got one, you can pick a present for your children and take them home. 
and they were absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah. They just, their mouths were literally dropping. They said, why would you do that for us? Why would you care? We've been so horrible to you. Why would you do that for us? And we said, well, because we love you and we're here to love and to serve you, you know, and we want to, we want you to know that, you know, we love you as much as we love the children. And my beautiful host mother was also a volunteer there at the orphanage and just amazing, incredible woman. And she just got alongside a lot of the women, just heard their stories. You know, pretty much every woman in Romania has had at least one abortion, if not multiple abortions, because of the lack of contraception. And so a lot of them thought, well, I can't, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm, I can't come, you know, and be embraced by this love and this grace because of all the guilt and the pain that they had. And my host mother, who herself had had several abortions, you know, got alongside them. And, you know, it was a real time of just reaching out to these women and seeing healing for them as well. And, you know, lots of tears, lots of hugs, lots of big emotions. That day. And then what did you notice coming out of that? What shifted in them? So that drastically shifted then our ability to care for the children. So from then on, they were open. They were like, yep, okay, we're ready to learn. And so we brought in teams of therapists. So we had speech therapists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists. I'm a nurse. So we did trainings with them. We taught them how to work with the children and we gave them hope, I think. Yeah. And then when they saw that they could do the exercises with the children and they could teach the children how to work, because they said to us, when we started working with the children, they said, well, that, why would you work with that child? He's got no hope. Yeah, There's no hope for that child. But when we showed them what to do and they saw the rapid progression in the children themselves, they got inspired to do so. So even when we weren't there then, they were then carrying on the work. And so all of our children pretty much learned to walk. All of them learned to talk a little bit, to feed themselves, you know, to experience joy again. And the workers themselves, yeah, I think experience joy in that place as well. Yeah, in the most unlikely place on earth. Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So if we skip forward just a little and, you know, you are working and you have moved and deliberately shifted your work to speaking into and speaking out and and sharing how we create cultures of courage, what was the point where you decided to stand in that space and bring that into literally corporate Australia, right? So corporate Australia, the environment that we've got, we've just come out of, you know, COVID and pandemic conditions. What was it that spoke into you so deeply that you knew this was what you needed to do, where you needed to go with your next piece of work? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's this history. I mean, I've got 25-year history of studying culture, yeah. of studying people. So wherever I am, whether it's as a nurse, as a humanitarian, you know, I'm in the depths of life with people. You know, as a nurse, I'm a cancer nurse, a palliative care nurse, like, being with people at their end stage of life, you know, it's a real privilege and, you know, really have learned how to sit with people in their suffering and to bring hope into those places as well. And so coming into a corporate context, I think I'm, I can bring, you know, that 25 years of experience of studying people and studying culture. And what I realised during COVID was that all of a sudden there was almost a culture vacuum. Yeah, It was almost like we all went into lockdown and nobody really knew what to do because we were just trying every it was such a shock and everybody kind of just keeping their heads above water and trying to figure out, you know, this has never happened before. What do we what do we do with this? And some companies navigated that okay or well even, but other companies sort of everybody was just like on hold. Everybody's been on hold and then, oh, but we'll just get through it. We'll just get through it. We'll just get through it. 
And then, you know, so that was 2020, 2021, another lockdown, 2022 was kind of like, all right, we're out of lockdown, let's just go, right? And then I think as you pointed out at the end of the year, everyone was exhausted by the end of last year. Yeah. And nobody, not nobody, but a lot and a lot of of companies just haven't thought about how can we be intentional about culture, not only during COVID, but we've moved into a very much a hybrid work culture. Yeah. And I think something like 95% of knowledge-based workers in Australia are uh, in some kind of hybrid workplace culture. And so, you know, thinking about we need to get intentional about establishing our workplace culture again. So even for companies who had a strong workplace culture when they were in person, some of those companies haven't been intentional about carrying that through to think, well, how do we actually create culture when people are working from home, when we're connecting online? Mm -hmm. And past five years, I've been director of a company myself, Unchained Solutions, which is helping Australian companies address modern slavery and their supply chains. And we've had a hybrid team right from the very beginning. Even before COVID, we we had a hybrid team. And so we decided that we were going to be intentional about culture. We decided, you know, because of all the work that we've done, a cross-cultural trainer, you know, we know the importance of culture and particularly workplace culture. And so right from the beginning, we decided we're going to, it sounds very weird to say this because modern slavery is such a heavy, big topic, but one of our sort of underlying core values is we're going to be the funnest people talking about modern slavery, Yeah, right? Because we know when you're talking about a hard, deep topic, there has to be light. You can't stay in that dark place all the time. And so we created this really fun, light, energetic culture with our team. And people who who have come into our team, they're like, this is the most values-driven, the most generous, the kindest organisation I've ever been a part of. Yeah. So I think coming out of that, coming out of COVID and realising, you know what, this is still, I think, a cultural vacuum in corporate Australia where, you know, people are getting burnt out. Even in companies where, you know, maybe last year they did see a big peak in productivity, they're starting to see that drop. Absolutely. As people are feeling more and more disconnected more isolated in their hybrid workplaces. So, yeah. So what is it that you, working and using that catchphrase of culture of courage, what is it that you actually want to instill and impart into these organisations when you walk into them? Yeah. The first thing is about being intentional. Yeah. about It's not just, you know, even if you were being intentional when we were together in person and a lot of companies weren't already being intentional, but, but culture happens around you. So culture happens like when you're on your way to the loo and you bump into someone and you catch up with them or, you know, the water cooler conversations or, you know, heating up your lunch in the tea room or, you know, or having quick bite or having even having meetings together. You know, culture happens when you're doing life together. You don't necessarily have to be intentional about that, although, you know, you do because still, you know, you can have toxic cultures when everyone's all in together. So we still need to be intentional. But when people are are online there's just this lack of intentionality so for example like one of the things that we do with our team is that connection always comes first so no matter what kind of meeting we have we always start the first five minutes with connection so how are you how's your family what are you doing how's your house hunting going how's how's your baby how's this and that we're always asking finding out about people what's going on for them that day touching base and then our team meetings our team meetings go for an hour and a half and an hour of those every fortnight is spent just catching up, just doing connection. So I think that's the first thing is about being intentional about connection. 
And there's some research that's been done by the Learning Circle, which showed that the biggest thing that's missing in a hybrid culture is that connection. And that's the thing that people are suffering from the most. So Encourage has an an acronym. Do you want me to run through it? or Yeah. Yeah. So Courage, so C is for connection. So that's the number one thing. So, you know, Brene Brown talks about, you know, that we're hardwired for connection. So back in, you know, our tribal roots, you know, it's those connections, those community that actually pull us together, you know, that you work together to, to exist, to, to survive as a community. So we're, we're actually hardwired for connection. And when you break that connection, it sends the body into the same physiological response as though a, a semi-trailer was heading towards you on the highway. Wow, that's an extraordinary impact. So when you've got a semi-trailer heading towards you and you, you get that kick of adrenaline and that fear and that fight or flight response, the actual, um, and she's proved it with all of her, you know, thousands of data points of research, that the same physiological response, the threat of disconnection is as real to us, to our brain, as that semi-trailer heading towards us on the highway. Because it's saying to like our brain that's hardwired for human connection, it's saying you won't survive. You're not going to survive this. If you're alone, you won't be, you won't be able to get through this. Right. So it's like that stress response that is causing that same response as though we were physically under threat. Our brain can't tell the difference, right, between a real and imagined threat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that threat of disconnection is actually, it causes us to go into that stress response. And then O is for outward focus. So to continually motivate your team by thinking out, so thinking about others. So in our example, you know, our whole organisation is around helping people to end modern slavery, essentially. So that is, uh, we always have an outward focus. But, you know, for a lot of companies, they don't have that natural outward focus. So, So to create that outward focus, you know, it's not about us. It's about the people that we're serving and get people to look out and not so much about themselves creates a sense of greater purpose. Yeah. And then you is for unity. And so to implement strategies and again, be intentional about values, about bringing people together and saying, you know, this is our common values. These are the things that we stand for. And every single piece of work, every single project, you know, everything goes through that filter of values. Yeah. I was very lucky early in my humanitarian days. I worked for a company called International Teams and my my leader, my director was just an incredibly values-driven man. And, and the values of that organization was so important that every weekly team meeting, we did a deep dive into one value. Wow. And then we'd get to the end of them and then we'd go back and start again, do a deep dive and, and, and work the way through. And I can still now, there's seven values and I can repeat word for word all of those values. Yeah. And every single thing that we did was put through that value filter. So for example, we were a small, like not-for-profit, no money going on. And I remember when the Bali, when the tsunami hit in Bali and we actually sent a relief team over, but he thought he wanted to give a donation as well from our organisation. And he went to give a certain amount of money. And one of our core values was sacrificial generosity. Mm -hmm. And so he, he set aside a certain amount of money and he said, you know what, that doesn't hurt enough. I'm going to double it. Yeah. It's not sacrificial enough. It's, it might be generous, but it's not sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial. So I'm going to give until it hurts. Wow. And, you know, that that model of a leader living those values every day. And actually outworking those values. Yeah. Yeah. Has really made a massive impact on us and, and how we run our own organisation as well. Yeah. And then the A? 
And then, so R, R is for resilience and also realistic, I want to put in there, because sometimes we get told, oh, you've just got to be resilient, got to be resilient, got to be resilient. (laughs) But it's also about, yes, it's about resilience, but it's also about realistic workloads, realistic expectations, realistic timeframes, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So resilience that comes with a proactive organizational investment in your people. Yeah. But it's not just about not just expecting people to be resilient to pick up the slack of yeah. under-resourcing. You just can't keep stretching, stretch and stretch and stretch, right? That's not resilience. No. Resilience is stretch and come back, stretch and come back, stretch and come back. And what we're seeing, especially in a hybrid culture, there's not this coming back anymore. It's just a continual stretch. Yeah, great point, actually. And then A is for authenticity. So to create an environment where authenticity is valued. And psychosocial safety is respected. G is for gratitude. So recognize the power of gratitude as individuals and as a team. Yeah. So again, in our team, we always start every email with gratitude. We always say, thank you for that great work you did last week. You know, I was just wondering how the project's going for this week or whatever, you know, so always starting with gratitude. And then finally, E is for empathy. So understanding how the world looks through someone else's eyes. Yeah. And, you know, again, my my humanitarian experience obviously influences that as well. Yeah. But, you know, day to day in a workplace culture, you know, what does that mean for you? Yeah. You know, some people love working from home. Some people don't. Some people have toddlers that, you know, makes it really hard to work from home, you know. So, you know, empathy, thinking about what does that look like through your eyes and how can I yeah. how can I make that easier for you? How can I come in beside you on that? Yeah. Yeah. So in answer to your question, I just feel like, you know, there's seven, you know, value points there, which, you know, as I'm speaking to corporates about them, I can see lights going on. I can see, you know, corporate leaders saying, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Right. How do we infuse our values, you know, if mm. they even know what their values are to start with? But, you know, let's have a look at your company values and then think, okay, what does that mean when I'm on an online meeting with someone? Yeah. How do I show, you know, authenticity, gratitude, empathy when I'm having a meeting about a project or, you know? Yeah. What does that actually mean when we're just looking at each other on the computer? Where do we go from there? Love that. So I think that that's, you know, I'm able to bring all of those stories and all of that experience you know, into those corporate boardrooms and to really encourage and also challenge people as well. Yeah. And I think, I think the courage is in the challenging of the people. It's actually getting them to pull up for a moment and really think about this and go deeper. One of the things I'd like to sort of start to just explore very briefly is when you talk about courage, I've seen you on a stage. I've been witness to you speaking and we've known each other for a while. To me, you are courage personified on a stage. You're a fierce speaker. You are prepared to challenge thinking and you do it with so much grace and empathy. What is it, especially as you are speaking into creating cultures of courage and you are doing more and more work in this space, what is it that you think is your superpower when it comes to speaking up and speaking into these things? I don't, I have a lot of fun on stage as well. Yeah, you do, (laughs) you do. You're fun and you're, but you're fierce, you're present, you're fierce, you challenge and you love. I mean, I think, um, but I think that's part of it. I think not taking yourself too seriously is one part, but I think my superpower, like honestly, Honestly, I do think that my superpower is these experiences that I've been gifted with throughout my life. Yeah. It's stories of the people that I've met, you know. Seeing people, I mean, for me, 
I don't feel like it's courage to stand up on a stage. That's what I love to do. That's, that's you know, my gift. It's my lifetime dream since I was like 15. I wanted to be a professional speaker. So for me, that feels like a gift. It doesn't feel like courage. But, you know, people like Fanuel who, who smile even though they have yeah. no food. You know, my friend like Shayla who grew up in a war, you know. You know, Ehab who, who had the courage to leave his family and start a new life because that's what he wanted for his children. You know, the children in the orphanage, courage every day, you know, courage yeah. to take the next step, courage to push themselves to grow and to heal. You know, those workers as well. Like I literally think, you know, I have this this multitude of stories and it is such a gift. It's such a gift. There's I don't know how many thousands of people I've met around the world, but it's their courage, really. It's the courage of people who have nothing, who literally have nothing and find something in themselves that they can bring back to the world. They're the people who give me courage. Yeah. You know, they're the people whose stories I carry with me, you know. And now I'm I'm back living in Belrose, in beautiful Belrose on the northern beaches of Sydney, you know. But still, you know, I encounter people who who have to have courage every day to show up, you know. Yeah. Even women nurse and dealing with people who are in their final days, you know, the courage of their families, the courage of of many of those people that I've sat with, you know, to to confront their own death and yeah. and to do that in a way which is positive and life-giving for the families that they leave behind, you know. So I feel like those stories, those people, you know, if I if I do have a moment of self-pity or feeling weak, it, it's I only just have to think about a couple of those people, yeah. you know, and that's like, no, I'll keep going. And and also the courage to fight for them. Yeah. You know, I realized that, you know, growing up in a loving family, one of three girls where I was never told like, well, you can't do this because you're a girl. Yeah. Like we were all girls. That's all we had. Right. So it was like, yeah. <laughs> you take the garbage out. You do like, you know, the things, but you know, and I wonderful parents that never told me like, you can't do this because you're a girl or you can't do this full stop. You know, it wasn't even a question in my mind, my, you know, but for the, the reality is that for millions of women around the world, just because they were born as a girl, they have no voice. Yeah. They have no, no agency. They have no choice. And so really, you know, I really realized at 17, I realized the gift that that was and the gift of the things that have been given to me and made that choice back then of, you know, my life is not going to be wasted. I choose to be a voice for the voiceless and I choose to stand up for the poor because they are the people who need their voices heard. Yeah. Sarah, on that note, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much. That was an extraordinary walkthrough, an incredible life. And I just want everyone to land on that last statement from you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.